The Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio present Savor 2014, an American craft beer and food experience from Washington, D.C. This recording was from Saturday, May 10th. Private Tasting Salon, Hop Trials, featuring Dan Copeman and Stephen Hale from Schlafly Beer. All right, good evening. Welcome to Savor. And tonight we're going to be doing uh, the first salon of the evening. This is with Shafley on Hop Trials. My name is Drew Larson. I'm with the Cicerone Certification Program. Uh, and I'll be your moderator tonight, which means basically after I'm done talking, I'm just going to sit here and walk to you with a microphone. We are being recorded tonight. And so, yes, I'm sorry. If you would like to leave now that I've said that, you're welcome to. The... Room has fantastic uh, acoustics, so you guys can all hear each other, but the mics won't pick it up. So if you have a question, raise your hand. I'll run over to you with a microphone, and that way the audio can get you. So this is the seventh year of Savor, which is great. It is an American craft beer and food experience the, uh, put on by the Brewers Association, who really is the advocate for the small and independent brewer. I really want to thank Spiegelau. They made this room possible for us tonight. And we're going to get started. There will be four beers total throughout the night. You've already got one. They're already starting a second round for you. If you want more, like if you want to keep your beers side by side, just let somebody know and they'll pour uh, the beer for you in a plastic glass. So I want to introduce two people to you from Schlafly. It's Dan Cotman and uh, James Otto Ottolini. And they're going to be from Shafley, and they'll take it from here. Hello. It works. You working? One check pills. All right. Cool. All right, it's working. All right, so um, we're going to take you through uh, something similar to what we do at the brewery. We'll, we'll take you through how this program developed, sort of why we do it, and, um, and how it all works. So... We're, uh, we've been um, around for 23 years, and prior to uh, starting the brewery in St. Louis, um, I worked for a brewery in England, and so was fortunate enough to spend quite a bit of time with hop growers in England. And so some of um, the work we've done over the years has grown out of the relationships that we have with growers and dealers um, throughout the world. So we've been very fortunate um, some of those relationships, some of those friendships are some of the most, uh, uh, it's kind of what, you know, it's one of those things that going to work every day puts a smile on your face because sometimes you get a chance to spend time with these folks or, or speak to them. Um, and they're all, they're all over the world given that hops are only grown really <clears throat> to any great extent in a few um, geographies on the planet. So... Are people familiar with hops in general? I'm assuming most of you are, how they're grown, etc. I mean, we, could, we can cover a little bit, or if you have questions. Um, but we're going to take you on four trials um, from the UK to the US through to Australia. Um, so the, um, over the years, what we have found is the... The farming, essentially, the hop farming is, if you think about farming like any other product, it's, it's about um, farmers are looking at hops in terms of how well does a certain hop grow, um, both in terms of 
hops are very susceptible to disease. So over the years, hop breeding has been very focused around really two areas. One, will the hop grow well? Um, will it, is it susceptible to downy mildew or powdery mildew? Um, hops don't like a lot of humidity. They don't like, they like, they're very temperamental, essentially. So um, in terms of breeding, the different, and most breeding like with other agricultural products started in universities. So in the UK, it's at Y College, and it, um, in the United States, it's Oregon State primarily, um, and Washington State, and, and in, in other parts of the world, similar. Um, Huel in Germany is attached to a university. So like a lot of plant breeding, a lot of the work was done um, in universities. So, um, and they, they really were looking at two, two things when they were working on breeding. The first is, you know, again, is it disease resistant? And the second is, how well does it yield? So like any other farming, you know, how, mon how much am I going to get per acre in terms of both, really in terms of dollars? A farmer's looking at what are my input costs and what are my expected revenues? And so when they're looking at hops, they look at two things. They're looking at the amount of yield on alpha, the bittering compound, um, the bitterness part of the hop. And then on aroma varieties, they're looking at the aroma characteristics because those hops sell on a per pound basis. So hops sell two different ways. They sell either per kilo of alpha, so a lot of contracts are done that way, or they're done purely on a per pound or per kilo basis. So think about hops as you get about 2,000 pounds of hops per acre, but a lot of farmers would be thinking about how many kilos of alpha per acre am I going to yield versus the inputs. Um, and so over the years, again, in breeding terms, they've been looking at hops that produce more alpha per acre. So if I'm going to yield 2,000 pounds of Hollertau tradition at 3 or 4% alpha, I'm going to end up with so many kilos of alpha. Whereas if I'm going to grow a hop that yields 2,000 pounds at 16% alpha, then obviously that's going to generate a lot more revenue per acre. So what's happened in, hop, in the hop world is that most hops were bred as, as for their alpha, not necessarily for their aroma qualities. Um, and brewers would approve hops based on, okay, I'll approve that hop. It can go into whatever blend of hops I'm getting because I'm getting so many kilos of alpha, irrespective of the variety. In certain parts of the world, obviously, like in England, they continued to grow hops for their aroma quality. Um, and an average alpha on a bittering hop in the 1950s was probably 5 or 6% alpha. Some of the hops that you know of today that are used as aroma varieties were bred as second or third generation alpha varieties 20, 30, 40 years ago. So a hop like, um, I'm trying to think of different varieties, you know, Ca American Cascade. Yeah, bullion or bullion, Cas even Ca Cascade, Cascade, Chinook, Centennial, big yeah. craft aroma hops today's where they were, they were bittering hops back then. Right. And English varieties, um, again, the same way. You get hops like North Down, um, in Germany, hops like Northern Brewer that are medium alpha hops, seven, eight alpha. These were, these were 
um, bred as alpha hops. Um, yeah, think of it like the one, two, three, four G, you know, the devices right. that we, we've got nowadays. You know, I, some of, I hope I'm not dating myself in saying that. Do you remember when going from 28 kilobytes per second to 56 was like super fast? Right, right on, yeah. Well, so that's, that's where we are. That's where we are. So a hop-like German Magnum, which is about 15 to 20 years old, which can get into 10, 11, 12 alpha, was bred as the high alpha hop of its generation in Germany. Today, Magnum is used as an aroma hop or a, what they'll call a mixed-use hop. And now it's Hercules. Hercules is a 16, 17% alpha hop. And in the United States, you had... Um, uh, hops like uh, Columbus, Tomahawk, and Zeus, CTZs that were bred definitely as <coughs> bittering and hops. They're all the same hop, actually. They're all the same it, hop. it just depends yeah. on who grows it. Yeah. But. Now they're getting replaced by hops like Super Galena, Bravo, and Apollo. And what, what the growers and the dealers are also doing now with this explosion in craft is they're asking brewers like ourselves to test these hops out for their aroma and flavor characteristics. So we're using them now in trials as a multi-purpose hop. So let me take you through how the, the methodology for these trials, and then we'll get onto this first beer, get on the second beer. It's very simple. We take one, one recipe, and the recipe doesn't change for any of these trials that we're doing. We'll do about 20 trials this year, we're holding about 30 different hop varieties um, right now that growers and dealers have sent us asking for these hops to be trialed. Those are, those are trial batches, by the way. Those do, there's actually a lot more hop varieties that come right. through on a sensory analysis, but only about a couple dozen make it to a full batch at our pub level. Right. So we'll have, um, it's basically two row pail. It's one malt. Um, so to make 15 barrels, we'll take about 1,000 pounds um, of two-row. That's, that's what is mashed in. Then we'll do um, four different kettle additions. We'll do a full kettle, small addition. We'll do a slightly larger kettle, uh, addition at 20 minutes. And then a large addition at the Whirlpool. And then there's dry hopping. And the dry hopping amounts are always the same as well. So these amounts, they vary a little bit, but they're generally speaking all the same so that we're getting basically a standardized look at, at each hop variety, both from its bitterness qualities, its flavor qualities, and its aroma qualities. Um, the, gravity, the starting gravity of each beer is about 15, and we'll finish it around three. Um, and we use an American Ale yeast strain, um, 051, um, at, in all these beers. And the dry hopping is always the same at about 30 pounds per barrel. Uh, for the 30 pounds, which would be about two pounds a barrel. Okay. <coughs> Sorry. Last night. So the first hop we're trying is a hop called Phoenix. So I thought we would start with a UK hop. Again, this is going to have a lot more subtle aroma than some of the hops we're going to try in a bit. Um, so, so Otto, you want to take us through yeah, this one? Yeah, one quick note about this. Uh, well, one... We're from the St. Louis Brewery, and we make Schlafly brand beers, and you probably know that. But one thing that I want to tell you is that uh, St. Louis is also home to another larger brewery. And uh, growing up in their, in their hometown, I, you know, 
it's always a delicate dance, right? It's all about beer. There's a lot of people in town that you don't have to convince them about beer, but what we were doing was, and what we have done for years, is try to bring examples of various styles from around the world. Um, there's a lot of, I'm sure we could do a salon just on growing up in the shadow of Anheuser-Busch InBev, but that's, this salon is all about hops and the relationships that we create as a brewery with the consumers as well as the relationships that we create with the suppliers are just instrumental in getting it from grain to glass or from field and bind to glass. But Dan's background in the UK and creating a sort of an English type pub as our first location, um, we've always tried to be as authentic as we can to various styles from around the world. And this Phoenix Hop Trial the reason why this piqued our interest so much is because we've made an IPA for years before IPAs really sort of made it big on the scene and, uh, and became such as a large segment. Now, we definitely weren't front runners because our IPAs were not West Coast IPAs. They were not citrus bombs. They were trying to emulate or imitate our best approximation of what an IPA might have been like exported from the UK. 150 years ago. But once we started getting consumer feedback, we've learned very quickly over the years that uh, it doesn't really matter what we like, it matters what you like. And we want to make those kind of beers. And so when the consumers tell us that we, they really want something with a lot more hop punch in it, in our export IPA, which is an homage to the exports from the UK, and really no one knows what that might have been like except those people who were there. Um, we still wanted to stay traditional, but we wanted to get more creative in terms of hop character. And Phoenix is a close relative of Admiral, and both of them are um, higher alpha English hops that have a, um, a bit more oil content and a bit more of the quality of, uh, traditionally English hops have a little bit more of what would be called a traditional or noble type hop aroma. Spicy, earthy notes to them. Not as much fruit, not as much floral. Maybe the floral might be subdued like a stone fruit. Think peaches or plums or a red fruit like a red currant or some berries. Uh, but the, the higher punch um, hops on the fruit like the Cascades and Centennials Piney notes, citrusy, grapefruit. Uh, ones from the Southern Hemisphere have tropical fruit, mango, peaches, um, things like that. So Phoenix here, sorry I'm rambling, um, but the Phoenix hop trial here is one that we conducted to try to select this as well as another hop, Admiral, for our uh, export IPA to just bring it to the next level of what the consumer is expecting when they see that label IPA and they say, oh, I'm going to get this. We, we definitely don't want to leave them disappointed, but we definitely want to remain true to our roots, both as brewers and uh, technicians. So th this is a, an, 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 a, what you'd call today a medium alpha hop. It's about 11% alpha, which is very high for the UK. So a, a traditional UK hop like Golding or... Um, Fuggle, those noble varieties, they're four to five alpha. So when you dry hop with them, they have relatively low oil contents. So you don't get a lot of punch. So when we started making export IPA, we were using Goldings primarily, another hop called Northdown, 
which is again a medium or lower alpha hop. So what we've been exploring with our UK growers, as, as they've developed, this hop was first developed in the mid-90s um, by Y College as a bittering hop for the big UK brewers that are basically all gone now. There's no major brewer, <clears throat> major UK brewer left. Um, and the amount of hops grown in England has gone from about 25,000 acres to about 2,500 acres. So for those of you who've been to England, if you've traveled the M25 motorway, the ring road around London, the southern, southeast portion of that motorway used to be all hop farms. And so you'll see the old oast houses in, in Kent and East Sussex, and they are now converted to houses. So there's, there's only about two dozen growers left in England. The average size farm is, a, or average size of, of their hop farms is about 50 acres. So it's all very small. So this variety had been sort of dormant. It had sort of disappeared. Phoenix and Admiral had both disappeared as the, the bigger brewers in England disappeared. And the big, you know, the Heinekens and Carlsbergs of the world aren't going to use um, UK hops for bittering. So one grower still had, it was growing this hop along with the hop Admiral. So we've trialed both of them. And when you try it, it's not, we're not, we're not looking for a big punch in this particular beer. We're looking for the aroma qualities, and then if we were to use this and more of it in a blend, will we get something that we're looking for in the final beer? So again, you're just looking at the aroma qualities and the taste profile of it, um, and not necessarily looking for this to be any sort of final beer that you're going to make. Any questions about UK hops or this beer or any questions? Any questions about hop growing at this point or, or how, this whole, how the whole hop, wor hop world works? So when you go over to England and you drink, first of all, this tastes like what you would drink in England. Do they still prefer this style or do they go after the American, like really big, assertive hops? You have, you have both. So what you have is the traditional English brewers that still remain. And they're, the, the, the challenge for a traditional English, English brewer is they have this burden of history. They sort of feel a burden to continue the tradition that has, goes back hundreds of years. And now you have startup brewers who have no interest in traditional cask beer, have no interest in English varieties, and can't get enough of Amarillo, Centennial, Simcoe, these big American varieties, um, because they're trying to emulate what's going on over here. So it's very confusing um, for them. Um, and it's really confusing for the grower. The largest grower is a guy named Tony Redsell. He's in his 80s. He has a grandson that's going to take on the farm. His, his farm is the largest, um, and it's about 200 acres of hops, which is pretty small by worldwide hop standards. So Again, they're a small growing community at this point. There's one processing plant left in England. Um, so um, we've got a hop on the list of trial. We've got about six UK hops. One of them is Cascade being grown in the UK. Um, so they're, trying, they're bringing rootstock over now from the US and, and trying to grow US um, hops. But um, we didn't use US hops for years at the brewery in St. Louis because 
the, my, the first head brewer I worked for always told me that U.S. hops were horrible. Caddy is how he described them. And that he would never, ever be caught using a U.S. hop. You know, the traditional Goldings and Fuggles were on, the only hops to be used in essentially any pale ale. So um, he's still alive, <laughs> but uh, he plays a lot of golf. Caddy's one of those derogatory terms that, like, I mean, I'm not, no offense to cat lovers out there. I, I love cats. I just can't eat a whole one. It's like the caddy comment, though, is really uh, refers more to, um, like, if you've ever had black currants, there's a certain earthy yet fruity note to that. It's actually in this beer. This, this beer reminds me a little bit of, like, um, boxwood, if, if that makes any sense. If you get a little bit of like a slight piney uh, with, a, with a fruity note to it. There, there's just some real earth, boxwood bushes have a real earthy uh, character to their, their aromas. Some people like them, some people don't. But uh, some people like cats, some people don't. This hop and Admiral are, are two of the only varieties grown in England that have relatively high oil contents. And so yep. this is why we're, we're playing around with it. Um, it's very hard in the UK with the growing conditions that they have to get high alpha hops to grow. So a, an 11% alpha hop is about as high as they will get. Um, it's the challenge that Oregon faces. Anybody been out to Oregon? Um, the, you know, Washington has definitely overtaken Oregon as the premier state for growing many years ago. And Oregon has a similar climate. That Willamette Valley has a similar climate to the south of England. And so it's very challenging to grow um, higher alpha hops in Oregon. And so Oregon's focusing on aroma hops as well. the world's most temperamental keg system. Uh, we were calling all the dogs in the neighborhood there for a minute. <laughs> you had a question, ma'am? So I've heard about sort of dry hopping and wet hopping as well. Okay. Um, do you do that really for a different flavor profile or is it something that's just more sort of extending the season of the hops or I don't know much about the difference, so I was just a little curious. So um, your question was basically about dry hopping versus wet hopping and what would some of the reasons be associated with doing that, right? Okay. So hops, anyone seen a hop? Anyone, everyone kind of looks, it looks like a, a, a pine cone made out of paper, right? It's really light, wispy. But at the center, the, the stem, the strig of the hop cone is where the oil glands are found, the lupulin glands. And that's, let's use a scientific term and call that mojo dust or something like that, right? But that's, that's the magic, that's the mojo that we're trying to get out there. It's actually the uh, female flower or fruit of the hop vine looking to be pollinated, but of course these plants are cultivated and reared to weed out all the males so that the flowers are fertile, as fertile as they can be and hence have the highest oil content. They are a close botanical relative to cannabis, and it's no mistake, that's kind of how cannabis farmers cultivate their, their varieties. But back to dry hopping versus wet hopping, 
the hops, hops are very perishable, and when they're harvested, they're dried as soon as possible to make sure that all the uh, moisture content in that vegetal matter of the hop cone does not start to rot and decay and detract from this mojo magic dust in the middle. And that's what the brewers are after, that, that has the oils that will make it a beer bitter or very aromatic depending on when you use it. So now think of these things as herbs, right? We've all cooked a little bit and we can all relate to herbs. If you um, take a bit, you, you're preparing a dish that has thyme and oregano in it. If you put that in while you're simmering for say a half an hour, it's going to darken in color, might turn some shade of army green and add a little bit more bitterness in terms of its flavor. Not saying that's a bad thing, uh, but you could also, as that dish comes out and is plated, you could take a little bit of even fresh thyme and oregano and sprinkle it on there. It's wet. It's, that fresh spice is different than a dry one. And even adding the dry spice at the very end rather than simmering it adds a different character. And, and all of them impart their own little flavor attributes. And the dry hopping versus wet hopping is something that's happening at the end of the meal preparation as the as the dish is being plated. And I, I'm speaking in analogies here, which hopefully is not confusing because I'm thinking that most of us can relate to preparing a meal or having a meal prepared for us than we can to preparing a beer or having a beer prepared for us. But that's exactly what it is. Dry hopping happens after the beer's been produced. So wort's made in a brew house, it's fermented, it's turned into beer. When it's done, dry hopping is where you'll pass it over the hops in any number of methods to impart those oils. Water is a solvent, alcohol is a solvent, CO2 dissolved as a gas into solution is also a solvent. All three of those solvents are present in beer and so you can dissolve and extract that mojo from the spice. Wet hopping is something that kind of celebrates harvest because the hops are fresh, they're not getting any younger the minute you pick them off the vine and so you have to use them right away. Um, and it's a little bit like uh, the Beaujolais Nouveau. Uh, it's not trying to dupe anybody into saying like, hey, you know, you normally pay a lot for an aged wine. Why don't you pay a lot for a, a, as young as they get, right? Uh, but that's really about harvest and celebrating that season and a good reason to party and, and drink some beer or wine. Yeah, so wet, hop, wet hopping, the use of wet hops in either as a kettle addition or in dry hopping. I mean, basically, wet hops versus dried hops would, would be what you're talking about. And then using those as a kettle addition or in dry hopping. But you can only use wet hops right after they're harvested um, because all hops have to be um, essentially dried in order to, be, to preserve the acid, both the alpha acid for bittering and the oils. And um, we have... We have gone out to harvest, taken wet hops, driven them right from the field to Southwest Cargo, flown them uh, like on the next plane. It's, it gets pricey when you're fl flying air cargo and flown them in and then use them. Like we couldn't get any closer. I, I'm sure there are breweries in the Pacific Northwest that didn't use their wet hops as fast as we did as you know, we were, we were on top of this. but. You stick your hand in the middle of a box of these things, and they're already starting to get warm. Uh, you can freeze them, but you're, you're basically 
you have to, in some cases, you have to adjust for the amount of water that's in the hop. So hop will take almost 10%, it, it will grow 10 times in weight just by the water it takes up when, from when it's dry to when it's wet. I take a dry hop, I put it in, it weighs 10 grams, I'm gonna get 100 grams out. So that can affect your recipe, depending on, you know, especially with some of these recipes, they use a lot of hops. So you have to start, chem, you know, doing some math, which always sucks the fun out of making beer, or drinking beer, doing math, anyway. Yep, all right, we'll talk, a, <clears throat> we can definitely talk a little bit about um, dry hopping methods, whether it's pellets or whole flower hops. Um, the second beer you tried, I think you're on to the second beer, is um, a beer, the same, again, the same malt and the same yeast, the same process. Um, this is an Australian variety called Ella. Now, hops were not traditionally grown in Australia. Um, the, the hop industry for, for years has been centered around um, between, in a triangle between, in Germany, sort of between Nuremberg, Munich, and Stuttgart sort of a, a triangle area, you know, the Holotau area and the Tetnang region. Um, and then some other sort of areas in, you know, a couple areas in Poland, the Czech Republic, essentially southern, southern Europe. Um, there was a small growing region for years in England, and then the Pacific Northwest, the United States, Oregon and Washington. One of the reasons that hops are concentrated in these regions is not all, I mean, the growing conditions are ideal in these regions in terms of the amount of uh, humidity, uh, sunlight, temperature, all those characteristics. And the other reason is, is that growing hops is extremely capital, in, uh, capital intensive. So a lot of your hop farmers also grow soft fruits. Um, they grow, a lot of them grow grapes. One of the largest hop growers in the United States is also the largest mint grower. Um, so they're used to growing specialty crops that have very, very high capital costs because you need millions of dollars at the farm level for drying and baling. And then um, it's a lot easier for brewers over the years to use a hop that has been pelletized. So essentially, you take the, the, the flowers, you mill them, that breaks down the, the, you know, that makes the oils and the alpha acid really usable. Um, and then they, dis they dissolve a lot better um, when you're using them in the brew house. So you're, it's a lot easier to extract um, both the bitterness and the oils, either if you're using them on the hot side or for dry hopping. And, and we've done a bit of both. So we have both equipment for dry hopping with pellets and equipment for dry hopping with whole flower cones. But to get the same result, we could, we could dry hop and like recirculate beer through a giant tea strainer that Otto built of, for whole flower, but we need to do that recirculation for about five days. Whereas with pellets, we can get those oils through, you know, because there's alcohol and CO2 and water essentially in beer, we can get at those oils much faster. So um, that's why you need that equipment close by. So that's why hop growing tends to be very concentrated and why it is extremely challenging when you hear about hops being grown in different, like, different states right now. So that brewers could say, I've got a beer made from only ingredients in my region. It's going to be really challenging on the hop side. Um, so back to this beer. <clears throat> so they didn't grow hops traditionally um, in um, Australia. And um, we discovered, and they started growing hops um, in the 70s, late 70s and early 80s. And it was in response to a trade war 
between Asia and Europe. And the major hop growing companies were concerned that they wouldn't be able to export hops from Europe into Asia. So they wanted to establish another uh, location for hop growing. And they, obviously there's lots of grapes grown in South Australia and in Tasmania. And so the, a couple of farmers who were related to some English growers that we knew started growing hops. And um, so they're, they're kind of related, but the rootstock, most of it came from um, the United States. And so they're growing, you know, mostly varieties but, that either have an origin in the U.S. or in Europe. So. And another close relationship to wine is hop varieties. You can see that hop varieties are very distinct and they're romanticized a bit in the same way as grape varieties are. And we talked, Dan mentioned a little earlier how we're eager. Uh, one of the lineups later this year is a cascade hop that was grown in the UK. And I'm sure we've all heard examples of these various grape varieties. This one was grown in a clay-rich soil. This one was grown in sandy soil. This one was grown on the sunny side of the slope. This one was grown by people with bad temperaments, whatever. You know, it all, everything kind of makes a difference in terms of you can take the same varietal and, uh, and change it about a bit. And so a lot of these hop varieties that they may have come from a rootstock that was predictable or they may have even been the same exact plant and transplanted. One, plants are fairly adaptive and two, the fruit tended to change based upon the climate and the growing conditions. So the first major hop that came out of Australia was a hop called Galaxy. And we trialed that about four years ago, five years ago, and it became the backbone for a beer that we make called Tasmanian IPA. Now we're, we're trialing some, some other varieties. One of which, Ella, is actually a variety that was originally called Stella, but yeah. they changed the name. Um, and it's actually grown about 200 miles north of Melbourne. And its original, um, so it, it, it's related to Galaxy. Um, it has a lot of that grapefruit and tropical um, fruit, and, we've, we've, but it's not as punchy as Galaxy. Right. It's a little bit more subtle. If you look find. at a quadrant of flavor profiles, Ella, is, even though she's so closely related to Galaxy, it's, she's a half-sister to Galaxy, she's actually on the complete opposite end of the quadrant. Not spectrum, but quadrant. You know what I mean when you kind of divide the top half, bottom half. Um, so, and I think that as an aside, uh, there must be much more lax trademark and copyright laws in Australia because we all know Stella, right? Uh, so uh, go figure, they had a copyright, they had a name-changing issue, and we're, the next one we're going to try is called Vic Secret from Victoria. used to be called Victoria Secret. So, so this, this was a cross between Galaxy and a, and a continental German hop, um, Spalt. Um, so it's a little, it, it's higher alpha than the first, because so you, the first beer you tried was Phoenix, sort of a, a, a hybrid essentially of a noble English hop, about 11 alpha. This is a 14% alpha hop, higher oil content. So it's going to, used in the same quantities in this trial, it's going to pack more of a punch. Um, but what we're looking to do is we're looking to use, um, uh, this and this next top Vic Secret 
as part of our blend um, in the Tasmanian IPA. So the hop growing regions in Australia are north of Hobart on the island of Tasmania and just north of Melbourne. It's not a lot of acreage at this point. It's, um, it's less than 2,000 acres total. Um, but uh, we've been fortunate to get a hold of these hops. Um, we first, I first found them uh, at a brewery in England um, where they had, um, uh, an English grower had gotten samples from, you know, some convict cousin of his or something like that. So, um, but again, they have higher oil contents, higher alphas that are similar to U.S. hops. It's always good to have a convict, convict cousin. cousin. Yeah, that's right. So the, the beer you're trying now, I believe, is Vic Secret. Okay. So this is a brand new hop. This hop was first released for trial in 2011. Um, and the trials were done um, in two breweries uh, north of Melbourne um, in the growing region. Um, first commercial production um, was 2013. Um, first commercial production was 20 acres. So again, there's not a lot of this hop available. Um, it's, I think, got a pretty distinct, I've tasted it a couple times, I'll get another one. Um, it's, it's pretty fruity. Um, yep. So again, using, you notice that compared to, for example, that first beer, a lot more bitterness. Um, because again, we're using them in the same quantities approximately, but we're just, we're higher alpha. Um, this was 15.8 alpha, the trial hop. Um, and again, um, higher, much higher oils. So in some of those early hops, you have a number, there's a different ways of, of rating oils. But if you had a cohumulin level of, you know, 20 on Phoenix, and in the 30s on, um, on Ella, this is in the 50s. So again, what brewers tend to be doing, and this is going to get very interesting because there's not a lot of these high oil hops that, um, you know, with a lot of high alpha hops, you get flavors that are not desirable. So the question is, how do you get a high alpha hop that has desirable flavor and then this big oil for aroma and flavor? And so there's not a lot of these hops yet available, and so they're very expensive. And so the question will be, how do brewers create blends, essentially, of beers to create that punch that maybe a consumer's looking for in a bigger IPA? Um, this is going to be a hop that um, folks are going to want. And one of the problems we've, we have is that we get, as you can kind of tell, we get kind of caught up in all of this in these trials and then we forget to commercialize it. So we'll then phone the dealer and say, hey, we did the trial and here are the results and we'll send them all the spider diagrams and all that and they love it and then we're like, yeah, we'd like to actually get some. And they're like, look, that's all sold out. Um, we're not very good. We're getting better at commercializing. Um, Tasmanian IPA was probably the first one, having done these trials for years, where we actually sort of, someone hit, hit us on the side of the head and said, hey, you should sell that. And um, we did. And yeah, that, that, now we can't make enough of it. Tasmanian of IPA started out as a single malt, single hop beer, or a smash beer. And it's, uh, normally we don't like to brag about anything but our sense of humility, but it is one kick-ass beer, the TIPA. And, I mean, people love it. We just can't make enough of it year after year. 
and uh, it was born of this program. But one thing, um, they, you're like perfume. Perfume is something that's got high notes, bass notes, got a middle note. There's usually a carrier for perfume, and balancing out the or the dish, the aromas and flavors of a dish. People are looking for a little bit of citrus to pick up and lighten up a, a heavier, starchy dish, right? Uh, this whole event is based upon pairing some beers along with various foods that have been prepared and thought out by, by chefs who are going through that whole creativity process, that innovation and ideation process. What I would really like to sort of clarify or convey here is that we're taking a look at the, the paints on our palate, one of them being hops. And we use a lot of different varieties. But as you've started to taste in a very blank palate, this is one malt, the, the most basic malt you can get, the base two-row malt, and one malt and one hop, you start to see there's varying levels of complexity. Now, I think this Vic Secret's a great example of how it's lacking something. I don't think that this is beer that we would want to bottle and sell. This has got too much earthy note to it. It's got a little bit of fruit on the background, like some stone fruit, but it just, it's begging for something else, right? You drink this beer and you think it's just like eating a dish and saying like, it needs something. It needs a little this or that. Everyone's going to have a different opinion. Maybe you don't know what it is, but you know that it does need something. But that's just as important. Painting a picture that with one crayon, or you don't paint with crayons, but you get my drift, right? Trying to convey something when you don't have all the paints on your palette to create actually does have some benefit. Limiting your creativity in doing something like this lets you get to know that color, gets to let, lets you get to know that range of the spectrum a little bit better so that you know what's missing and it makes what you put in next all that much more important. So I, I don't know if that's a little too esoteric or you know, cerebral from an artistic standpoint, but we, we go there, right? Brewers are artists and technicians all kind of shoved into one body. Uh, this, is a, this is a real important part to our ideation creative process. Okay. So every beer you've ever tried has been made with um, one family of hops. Um, Humulus, lupulus, lupulus, okay? European descent, that rootstock. Obviously, they have different characteristics depending on you know, how they were bred, where they're from, etc. So, but that's every beer that has, is commercially brewed in the world is made, essentially think about it as, how many are you familiar with oysters? I always compare this to oysters. So, you have oysters, you have the, the, basically you have two varieties of oysters really in the world, two families. You've got the European Ballon flat oyster and then you have the Pacific um, deep shell, craggy shell oyster. Those are their two sort of distinctly different bivalves. With hops, there's really only one parentage essentially to every hop when you trace it all the way back. Obviously, they have been bred over the years to produce higher alphas, to reduce disease better. Um, the beer you're about to try, I think we're pouring right now, um, is 
Humulus lupus neomexicanus, okay? And you're going to be seeing beers over the next few years start to come out with essentially hops that have, are from a wild parentage. And they're not all going to be the same. So if you see a hop that says it's neomexicanus, it's the next great drug you can't get, these are going to be different varieties, different hops. So one grower that um, Otto has known quite well, and when you, when you get with these growers, and you're, they're like all farmers. I'm married to a farming family. And farming leads to, you know, you go back to the house, it's late at night, you're having a few beers or a few whiskeys or whatever it is, and no farmer's ever happy, right? right? There's never, you'll never meet a happy farmer. If they're having a good year, they'll build another garage because that's where they're going to put the new car. They don't want you to know they've got a new car. So they're always, the world's always falling apart. So this one farmer, Eric Demeray, and I'll let Otto talk about this relationship he's built up and he and Derek. Um, Eric's been playing around with these wild hops from a guy he met in New Mexico. And so do you want to sort of take it from here? Because it's, you're going to be seeing these and there's a backstory to it, which is quite interesting. Yeah, these are um, actually, these hops have been grown in New Mexico for quite a few years now, about a dozen years. This gentleman's been growing them for medicinal purposes. Hops um, are a nettle plant, so they're somewhat analgesic. They, they're soporific. You, um, there are very few uses for hops outside of the brewing industry. The, the beta acids can be cultivated for preservation and sweeteners and sugars. But uh, mainly, the, it's a very small niche industry of homeopathy. Uh, but this gentleman had approached Eric Demeray about who, is, and Eric is this real bright guy. Uh, he's a farmer up in Yakima and uh, studied at the University of Washington over in Spokane. He has a degree in agronomics. He just, he understands a lot of the driving principles upstream and downstream, which is about the only thing as a farmer you can control because mother nature is quite fickle and you have good years and bad years, right? So Eric uh, really was intrigued by this indigenous hop and started growing it up to produce and, and get and pick on a commercial scale, which is actually really difficult given this hop because one of the, um, they, it's actually just this, Neo-Mexicanus hop is being released this year under the trade name Medusa because that's one of the um, uh, one of the aspects of this, the mutations of this hop. Normally a hop cone grows out one single cone, but you can get a double or a triple. This one will have multiple heads coming out of the same cone, like the snakes out of Medusa's head. So it's, it's pretty cool. That actually is real, makes it really difficult to pick because the picking mechanisms are all designed to pick a certain size hop head and they, they have these things called dribbler belts and they do just that. They dribble the hop cones down and they carry away things like leaves and stems. So it's hard to get a Medusa head to dribble down the belt. But uh, I think Dan mentioned Derek as well. Derek Stepanski is our head of quality assurance and control. And Derek has done a lot in terms of hop procurement and going out and making these visits in the field with farmers. He took our head brewer last year, and uh, they, they were hanging out with Eric and uh, had a few beers at the end of a day of picking. And uh, 
uh, that this is really how this hop, I think we got about one-sixth of the total production in 2013 because um, we, it was just the relationship. A couple of our guys had a great conversation, great conviviality with this farmer who is doing this really cool project and they ended up driving our van out in the middle of a field and checking out these hops, rubbing them, sniffing them, falling in love with them, and getting a bale of the hops. He only produced six bales last year. So, so a bale hit the truck. So a bale hit the truck. The truck at about 2 a.m. Right. And that's usually how, that's a lot of how some of this stuff happens. So the bale hit the truck. We flew it back to St. Louis, and then we recently started uh, brewing, sorry. We recently started brewing these trials. Now, as I said, there's different versions of this hop. The one that, this is a relatively low alpha hop, the one that we've brewed with. Eric's got some other, other versions of this that he has measured that, you know, that have measured out higher alpha. So you're going to see this starting to happen. You know, these, are, these wild hops, Eric's going to push the acreage because he thinks it's something that craft brewers are going to be interested in. But they're going to be different versions, and in all likelihood, Eric will give them different names. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen. But it's uh, So you can get a little bit of spicy out of this, yeah. but you can also get a lot of vegetal, right? Now, that can be, vegetal can be a bad thing. Unless you're making like a vegetable dish, then vegetal is quite nice, right? So uh, green tea is quite vegetal. People don't describe green tea as vegetal, right? They taste green tea and they like it. But, you know, if you said, well, I get chlorophyll. I get liquid chlorophyll and vegetal characteristics all over this thing. Does that really matter when beauty's in the eye of the beer holder and they, they like the green tea flavors that they're getting? This is a great example of this spicy note and the earthy uh, vegetal notes that you could play well with. We did another hop trial with some Tardif de Bourgogne, and very old French hop that's not even grown in France anymore. It's being grown in Poland. And uh, it beautiful green tea flavors out of that one. So Yeah, that one was just... We're not sure how to use it. We've, we're trialing it again because how do you produce a beer that somebody that, that smells and tastes a bit like green tea that you guys are really going to want to drink? I mean, when we, we, what we do with these trials is they all go on tap at our two bars. And it's not like every hop trial is a winner. Um, there are definitely ones that hit the drain. You know, we'll put them all on tap and we try to make sure that the consumer knows... Um, and our serving staff, especially bartenders and serving staff, um, that this is part of the hop trial program so that when people come to the brewery, it's a hop trial. You may yeah. not like this beer. You don't want to confuse folks. Hey, yeah. You don't want to make people think too much, right? They're done. They're done with their day. They came there to unwind, not think as much, relax, have a good time. They're on a date. They don't want, like, if they wanted to sit in on a, a salon, they, they would do that. They... they they, they don't want a lecture from the brewer or the, the bartender, but um, it, it's great because, in all honesty, those pubs, the bars, and restaurants we have are like these little focus market research groups without the creepy one-way mirror, you know? And so we get to have people come in, and we can actually talk to them and get their opinion and, and craft what we do. Any last questions about hops in general or any hop varieties you've heard of that where is this, what's going on with this hop? So, so when you market the different IPAs or the different hops, 
do you feel like most people understand the difference between them or they're just trying out stuff and seeing if they like it? And then do you also know, at least in America, what people gravitate towards and what they tend yeah. to be turned I think the by? biggest challenge is you, you have, with, with the IPA, the IPA category got away from us completely because to me an IPA had to be made with English hops. And I was a very stubborn, stupid person. So when we were using American hops initially, our first American hop beer we called dry hopped APA, American pale ale, because it wasn't an India pale ale. Now, obviously, I've you know, completely been you know, reformed or I've, I've had therapy, you know, so I'm happy to call an American hopped beer an IPA. But I'd say there's two drinkers now. There's someone who comes in and says, hey, you got Bud Light or a really good IPA? You know, I drink both. And, and so for them, the subtlety of all this is, is completely used. I mean, they're just looking for, I believe, they're looking for grapefruit juice, alcoholic grapefruit juice. That's my feeling on it. They want something fruity um, that is, is an IPA because they know IPAs. And just give me an IPA. And then I think you have another group of consumers that do have an interest. I don't, I'm not really smart enough to know but what we've ended up doing is we've got these three IPAs uh, that are part of a special release series. One's export made with English hops, one's American made with American hops, and then the other one is this Tasmanian made with Australian hops. We're about to release black IPA as a bottle, a, a black IPA, but it's, it's going to be made with American hops. So the question has come up, well, someone said to me, well, can't we use hops from another region? And I'm and I'm like, well, we're kind of out of regions, you know. I mean, we could essentially do a continental IPA um, with German or Polish hops, but it's going to be very similar to that export IPA because English noble hops and German noble hops have similar characteristics. They're very different, but subtly. And so if a drinker is looking for that big pop, that big citrusy hop bomb, they're not going to get it from a continental IPA. So... I don't know if I really answered your question. I don't. I think you can split IPA drinkers too. There's some that want the, uh, you know, I, this sounds like an accusation, but I've, I can't think of a better term than the machismo of like drinking something bitter, right? The more bitter, the better, kind of like hot peppers. But I've been to an Asian restaurant where the hot pepper dishes, and that, like it looked like it was scary when they came out, but they were cooked so well that. And I don't, I don't claim to know how they did it, but you weren't, like, rushing off for Kleenex tissues from the bathroom or your eyes weren't watering and your body temperature wasn't so elevated that you couldn't enjoy the meal and the conversation that came along with. And bitterness, to me, is one element like spiciness in a dish. And the dish, in this case, is beer. And when you get people... I mean, that's one of the things that we try to do with our beers is we make them balanced. And I, I, Bud Light has a... Uh, an expression uh, drinkability, right? It says smooth and refreshing on the can, so it doesn't lie. It is smooth. It's refreshing, and uh, that, you know, that's that's one of the claims to fame for that beer. But um, the we want people while we're not competing for share of stomach. That's an actual marketing term that uh, some folks in the beer industry use. They want to know how much of your stomach they can purchase. You know, at this price, how much, how, how much of your stomach can we fill, right? It's just very mechanical and technical and, and like, off-putting. So that's not why we go there. But we do want you to finish a pint of beer and say, 
that was really good. I'll have another one. Or if variety is your kick, you know, then you might order a sampler. You might say, like, I'm going to try something different. But you're not going to try something different because this one left, like, some coating in your mouth of, like, bitterness that you're going to have to go remove, like, a shellac or something with a, a thinner beer. I think one of the dangers we have to watch out for is that as these new... The, the hop growers have figured this out and the dealers have definitely figured this out. If they can create a hype around a name irrespective of the quality of the hop and they can get a brewer or a group of brewers to translate that hype through to the customer then it's a win because then every brewer is going to chase that hop variety and so i think one of the dangers we have is that we turn hop varieties almost into marketing messages that have absolutely nothing to do with the quality of the hop or the or what or the beer it's going or the in. beer itself which is why we all showed up here in the first yeah. place so i, I think that's one the of the things we have to be careful of it's not something we're particularly good at so we could you know we've got one sixth of the quantity of neo-mexicanas if if i was really smart i'd stick it in a bottle and start selling it probably i would i i don't yeah, don't make a beer with it. Just, you know, divvy up the bale and sell it in little yeah. baggies. I mean, I, yeah. it, the, the naming game is getting as ridiculous as the, that movie right. Pineapple Express where there's a, a pot dealer naming varieties of yeah. cannabis, and it's ridiculous. It's yeah. like, the hop game is, is it, 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 it's, it's interesting. We were, um, Otto watched me, like, get really beat red last night because I was on the phone with a hop dealer getting really pissed at him. This is somebody who's in between us and the farmer, and he was, um, he was playing cowboy. Well, the market's gotten really hot for this hop. You know, well, you're, it's going to cost you more. And I was like, don't give me that shit. You know, it's just, you know, I'll phone the grower and fix the problem, but it, it, it's just one of these things, especially in the United States, these dealers get real cowboyish on a hot market for this hop. And uh, that gets... That, that, starts to piss me off and because it's and but we're not very good at as a brewer Schlafly has has not been very good at commercializing these because we're not into brand names all of our beers are Schlafly in the style um we're just not clever enough to be um get into the hype game so that's one of the dangers but so I, you know when you when you try a beer i think it's always useful to sort of know what went into it and know a little bit about the history and the parentage of that hop. And it's all, it's the internet. It's all out there. Um, and you can easily find yeah, out. If you're not willing to be transparent, your drinking public will do it for you. Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. How, I mean, I just responded again to that thread on STL hops about our AIPA just because it's really cool. It, it's actually, it's cool and it's kind of a pain, um, honestly. But then again, when you play a sport, your coach is kind of a pain in the neck too, right? And it's because they're standing there and they know that you can be better. And they're, they're as much of a pain in the neck as they are, they're always a stand and a commitment that you're going to be better than you know yourself to be. And in a way, that's who our customers are for us. Because when we get something like on Tapped or this thread called STL Hops in St. Louis, that's who the customers are. They're always a stand that we're going to be better than we know ourselves to be. Polly. What, like what, 96. Yeah. Yeah. What irritated us is that people were trying one beer at both of our breweries oh, yeah. and saying that the beer was better at one than the other, but the beer had only been made at one and transferred to the other. 
And so how do you, you know, what do you say to that customer? You know, you, you basically have to craft a response that is, don't mean to sort of burst your bubble here, but, you know, we made it all at one place and just transferred the kegs to the other. And I know you love going to the tap room and it's a great old building and it doesn't look like Bottleworks, which was a piece of shit 1950s grocery store. So they look different. So they're gonna, the beer's going to taste different because you're sitting in a different place. And... Um, there was, a, you know. there was a lot of conjecture in his proposed scientific theory on the, on the threads in the chat rooms. Right. But there you go. It's, it's, it's an interesting world, the beer world. Sorry, we, we'll, you know, we need to shut up because we can go. <laughs> we Any, have till 11, right? Yeah. <laughs> Any last questions? You guys need to get out there and try some beers, but yeah, what? When there's a new variety of hops that they're trying to develop, get more plants out there, are the plants that they're expanding, are they like genetic clones from the same rhizome that they're just splitting, or do they go back to the parent plants and sort of pair them up more to get more plants out there? Well, a lot of times what will happen is they will use a rhizome that, for its rootstock, and then they'll graft onto the top of it with whatever types of varieties they want. Um, so, and those varieties all have a number associated with a prefix that's associated with that breeding company. And, um, <clears throat> but it takes about 50,000 germplasm growing up from like the base material. It takes about 50,000 of that at that stage to get one variety to bring to market. So that's a pretty big wide funnel. Uh, and they're, they're generating a lot of things. A lot of times, what they end up with, out of those 50,000 varieties, only about 1,000 will make it to a plant that is one hill or one vine in a field that they'll grow to see how it cultivates a little bit. And then out of that, maybe they'll get like seven rows or you know, maybe 50 uh, seven-hill plots. And so they have to grow it up like that, but a lot of times, whether it's um, the rhizomes or the rootstock would be selected for their disease resistance, their agronomic benefits. And, um, yeah. All Does right. That answer that? Well, we definitely won because they ran out of stuff to talk about over there. <laughs> and started leaving like 20 minutes ago. But hops are incredible. Right now it's the hottest thing in America. It's like, let's talk about hops. What about hops? So much so that great breweries like Schlafly are experimenting with one at a time. So I really want to thank Dan and Otto for taking the time to really go down in depth about hops with us. There's a lot of fantastic beer and food out there, so go try it. Uh, I don't know if they're leaving the room or not. Uh, so if, you're, if you're interested in this program at all um, and would like to see data from the program, we're happy to share it. Just get us your email address and we'll share you the data. Thank you for listening to this recording from Savor 2014, brought to you by the Brewers Association and Craft Beer Radio. You can find the rest of the salons from Savor 2014, as well as all of the salons from previous years of Savor, at craftbeerradio.com slash savor or on craftbeer.com. Craft Beer Radio is a weekly beer podcast that you can listen to on iTunes or from our website at craftbeerradio.com.